welcome into the show. It is Daniel Werbeck coming to you from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast, 6 a.m. out in the mountains and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday, September the 26th. Appreciate you joining the show. Thanks for watching, for listening, for supporting, for reaching out. We are primarily a a football show, and by football I mean soccer, as you know. But um, last night, my favorite show on TV, uh, Suits, Wrapped up its ninth and final season, and um, I was sad. My wife, uh, my wife was picking at me, uh, making making fun of me for being sad. Um, but that's because I usually mess with her um, about her Hallmark movies and so on and so forth. So I I deserved it, but uh, it was uh, it was a melancholy night uh, because of that. It was nice to see some storylines. Uh, Wrap up in 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 a in a good way uh, for um, for the show and for the characters on the show, but um, yeah, I was I was not happy that the show was ending. Um, I I loved that show. I loved the the psychology and the deal making and the back and forth and um, so on and so forth. So it was it was sad to see it go, but um, certainly understand after almost ten years of them uh, calling it a day on uh, on wrapping the show but um yep so that was my that was my night last night um it it, it was just uh look looked forward you know all week to uh to wrapping that up i, I wish it would have ended with a a 2 hour episode rather th- rather than a 1 hour episode uh felt like there were some things rushed but you know that's uh that's how it goes. Speaking of rushed, uh, Jeff Carlisle, writer with ESPN, uh, posted a story. Is Christian Pulisic's lack of playing time at Chelsea calls for alarm. When Christian Pulisic's $73 million move to Chelsea was announced in January, there were equal parts excitement and trepidation. Now, real quick before moving on, most of American soccer at large were excited. I don't recall there being very much trepidation in this regard. I was trep- uh, in that category of trepidation. Not as much about Christian, even though, I mean, I knew it was going to be a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, to leave the Bundesliga, to come to the Premier League, to come to London... Um, but also to come to Chelsea. And that's what I was a little concerned about. Chelsea is not known uh, over the last, you know, 10 years of being a club that values young players. They seem to be a very impatient club when it comes to that. They're willing to, the owner is willing to buy, buy, buy all of the time. And um, so, you know, they've gone through a lot of managers back and forth, back and forth. It just seems like, to me, um, it was a it was a tricky move. Um, not saying it was the wrong move. We'll see whether whether it was or was not the wrong move. But 
you know, coming in from Dortmund, getting to Chelsea, and then integrating not just with the Premier League but with Chelsea itself, I thought was a little bit of a risk. But, um, you know, kudos to Christian. He believes in himself and took the challenge. Um, But one of the things that that Jeff Carlisle is bringing up is – the uh, the anticipation game from having the American heading to one of the world's biggest clubs for a fee more than three times the previous record for a U.S. international. If Pulisic could break through with the Blues, there was a chance that he could live up to the predictions or hopes that he would become the first transcendent American star, but the enthusiasm was tempered by concern of, over how much he would actually play, especially coming off a season with Borussia Dortmund in which his time decreased due to a combination of injury and the emergence of Jaden Sancho. That's a, that's a key point. A lot of people forgot. They, we remember his success at Dortmund. We remember his, uh, his opportunities at Dortmund and you know Champions League and all of these different things. What we forget, or, or what I feel like the public forgets when, when they look at Christian, is they, they see the highlights and they see the big moments, they, but they forgot the recent past. This recent past that, that he was not penciled in as an automatic starter. He was not at the top of the list when it came to pecking order. When Maurizio Sarri... Chelsea's manager, when Pulisic's transfer was agreed upon, returned to his native Italy and Frank Lampard came in to replace him. The American's position looked even more vulnerable. Just six weeks into the season, Pulisic has shown flashes of ability, like when he set up Olivier Giroud's goal against Liverpool in the UEFA Super Cup, but has found minutes harder to come by recently. When he has featured, he struggled to make much of an impact, often opting to play it safe. Okay is the word that keeps coming up from those assessing the Americans' performances. That hasn't been enough to keep Pulisic in Chelsea's starting lineup, even as he returned from international duty early. So, a lot of people, and and this is kind of some of what Jeff Carlisle is bringing up, a lot of people on social media are concerned. They're starting to panic. They're starting to freak out a little bit. What happened? Is his career on the download? Is it on the decline? Is it going backwards? The truth is, this is an open market system. And you have to be better than those that you're competing against. Plain and simple. And whatever it is that he is or is not doing... Whatever that is, that's on him, and it's up to him to prove to his manager, Frank Lampard. If, if he can't convince his manager... Sure, if he can't convince those within the club that he is a guaranteed in the starting 11 player, that's on ultimately on him. Now, there are a lot of factors at play. When it comes to playing time, your talent and ability and your consistency to deliver performances is is chief above all. 
But there are other factors. Agents, size of your transfer fee, favorite of an owner, favorite of a manager, relationships, personal relationships. How do you get along with everyone on your team? There's so many other influences and factors to playing time, starting lineup, etc. But first and foremost, just to get you qualified to get access onto that field is your talent and ability and consistency to deliver performances. That's the chief among them, but that does not in and of itself in a vacuum mean that you are a, a sure-fired starter all the time. Now, if you're on the level of a of Messi or Ronaldo, players of that caliber, obviously their talent and their consistency of performances transcend everything else. And as a player, that's what you should be striving for, that that becomes not just the most important, but it is so overwhelmingly in your favor that even if everything else was against you, they would still play you because they would know overwhelmingly this is the best sporting decision. And that's where you want to be as a player. That's what you shoot to strive for. And everything that I've ever read about Christian or his family and and the conversation surrounding Christian as a player is that that's his mentality, that he wants to be the best and the best that he can be. And so time will tell if that pays off. But if you're someone freaking out about Christian Pulisic and his playing time and, oh, no, is this guy falling? Number one, he's new at a club. He's at a club, as I mentioned, not known for patience, but for a quick trigger. So he's going to have to work extra hard there. And then you look at other comparable situations. Look at an Abby Keita. Heralded in the Bundesliga, comes to Liverpool and... You know, was slow getting integrated into the team. And then as he's starting to work his way in, hit some injuries, setbacks. Now he's having to try to rework himself back into the team. Fabinho with Liverpool. Another good story comes in. Slow at first to get integrated with the team. But more and more as he's gotten comfortable, more and more as he's understood the system, more and more Klopp has trusted him, he's become a regular. Someone that's that's regularly penciled in for the Liverpool starting lineup. That's the process that Pulisic is going to have to undertake if he wants to succeed at Chelsea. And... Um, we need him to succeed. We need more American players to have success. So hopefully, uh, hopefully things work out, and hopefully, he um, he's able to to elevate his game even more. And uh, and part of that elevation, I think, is consistency of performances. And and if he's able to do so, then you know I think things can uh, can turn around in his favor, and uh, and turn it around in his favor in a good way, and in a big way. Um, but everybody freaking out right now just needs to, to take a deep breath and calm down. Uh, it's still early in the process. If this was a year, 
in or more, then I would definitely say, hey, this is concerning. But it's early in the season. And, um, you know, say what you want about the Premier League and the quality of play. I personally think that uh, La Liga in Spain is a, is a better quality league uh, year in and year out in terms of play. However, there is something different about the Premier League in terms of its intensity, um, the culture around that game in terms of speed of play. It is very fast, and sometimes it takes players a little bit of time to adjust. It doesn't mean that it's better play. It's just, it's just really, really fast, and, um, and you have to adjust to that. And so I'm sure part of this is an adjustment period as well. So... Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. Go there, use promo code DW Show to get 10% off of your order. And if you want to know more about Ducktick Brand, tune into the show tomorrow because we will have Tiffany Weimer joining us on the show again. And uh, she is one of the co-founders of Ducktick Brand. So look forward to chatting with her tomorrow. Coming up after the break, we are excited to bring an interview to you with John C. L. Morgan. He is with Roosevelt Soccer and Soccer Maine. Tune in for this interview. It is, uh, I think it's going to be a really good conversation and one that you will want to hear coming up right after this. into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, September the 26th. We are joined by John C. L. Morgan from Maine. John, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty well, Daniel. How are you? I am doing well myself. Thanks for coming on the show. We are uh, excited to have you on. As a matter of fact, uh, just a little side note here. Uh, your scarf is a part of our set. It's a uh, part of the table um, that uh, is on our, our set here for the show. And we see it every day. And uh, we appreciate that uh, that you, you sent that in. Uh, we, we solicit it um, 
you know, clubs to send in merch uh, when we were, were getting ready to start the show, uh, this version of the show. And um, and you guys sent in some stuff. And uh, a big thank you to you and, and happy to have you on the show. So welcome in. Absolutely. And uh, let me say uh, thank you to you as well um, for your su- support of small clubs like ours. Um, we were very excited to send in the scarf and even more excited to see it as part of your new set. So, uh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, as you know, uh, we are big, 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 um, believers in independent soccer clubs, no matter how large or how small, um, the, the bigger thing to me is that every, every club has opportunity and access. That's, that's the big thing to me. And so, um, speaking of that, I wanted to have you on the show to, to for, for a couple of reasons. One is I wanted you to talk about your club. You, you are not the first person I've had on the show from Maine. Uh, Sherry Levesque, the executive director of soccer Maine has been on the show and she's a friend of the show. And, um, I wanted to have you on the show because you you also have some really interesting things you've put out um, about soccer landscape, Iceland, etc. That we're going to get to in a second. But before we do, I want I wanted you to have an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about your project, your club, Roosevelt uh, Soccer Club, and 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 tell the audience that you know what it is that you guys are about, and and um, you know what you try to accomplish or what is your mission as a club? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we started our club about five years ago. And just so your listeners have context, uh, the way club clubs are structured up here in Maine is uh, we have what what we call our classic clubs, um, which are primarily town based. And they generally run from U9 to U14, um, from the from from August until about November, and then we have what are called what we refer to as premier clubs, and those are generally clubs. A couple clubs play like a month, nine month season, um, August through June, but there are quite a few other clubs such as ours that play a schedule from January through June. Um, so our club Roosevelt is uh, was founded in part to complement those classic town based clubs that play in the fall. And um, the biggest thing that we wanted to do when we started the club five years ago is to provide a uh, more affordable, more accessible um, off-season option for um, Southern Maine's players than um, we're currently out there as as, as viable options. Um, I actually had just stepped down as a varsity coach at a local high school, um, and so we were looking at giving some of my former players the opportunities because um, I coach, I grew up and I, I currently teach at a school that is in a, uh, you know, a former mill town. Um, although we still have a, 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 you know, a pretty active paper mill. Um, but anyway, so we have a very blue collar um, working class town. And when I was coaching high school, what I saw was players of the, of the socioeconomic status um, were underrepresented when it came to um, the off-season clubs, which tended to be, you know, private clubs that were uh, relatively expensive. And so what started as a project for primarily my former high school players and other high school age players um, in the Southern Maine area, five years later has blossomed into um, a 12-team club. 
And um, we've gradually added younger age groups. So we're primarily youth centric at this point. And um, even though we've grown, we've grown with purpose and we've made sure that our mission statement of providing quality programming uh, during the off season. So from January through June um, is still available. And um, not only that, but the goal has also shifted to helping other clubs grow in the state of Maine um, because what we've run it, what we've, um, noticed is that we as a club are only as strong as our competition. Um, so us and, uh, probably about a half dozen other independent clubs here in the state have gradually been building up the independent club scene in Maine. And, um, we've, we've made some progress, but we think there's still a lot of potential both at both within our club, but also the state in general. Now, before we move on, I can't, I can't uh, let you get away with what you just talked about at the very end. You're okay. telling me and all of American soccer that it is in your best interest to have competition and quality competition. Absolutely. And, and you know, I'll, I'll kind of set the context of where we are as a state compared to, say, Iceland, which is a much more robust club scene uh, or club system than we do here in Maine. Um, but it's definitely a case where I think a lot of youth clubs, um, a couple here in Maine, but I think a lot of youth clubs over the, across the U S not to mention, um, you know, professional clubs as well. I think they tend to focus a little more on market share and trying to, um, control as much market as possible, try to accumulate as many players who are paying registration fees as possible. Um, but we have always been trying to focus, focus on player development and, um, have relatively low coach to player ratios, um, focus on quality as opposed to just quantity. And so when we're not looking to just grow market share, we need those other clubs, those other independent clubs to help us build, build a, a vibrant club scene in the state. So absolutely competition obviously makes us better, but I think it will also make um, our state and hopefully our country soccer scene better as well. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in competition uh, and uh, <laughs> I just, it's refreshing to hear a club uh, with the mentality of, we want to get better at what we do, but we also want our competition to be better because it's going to make us all better. Uh, rising tide lifts all boats uh, in that scenario for sure. Um before we get into the Iceland thing, last question on this. Yep. How do you, as Roosevelt Soccer Club, how do you work with these half dozen or so other independent clubs to raise the level, the quality level? Um, you know, it's easy to say that we want to make soccer better. We want to develop better players. We want to focus on better players. But what are some of the, the steps that you take, the how part of the process um, that other clubs maybe around the country could learn from some of the things that you guys are doing up there in Maine? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to understand the context of the scene in Maine when uh, we did found our club five years ago. Um, we didn't know it at the time when we were um, starting to develop our club, um, but the two biggest clubs in the state, both of whom have operations beyond Maine, uh, one is regionally based, one is nationally and internationally based, um, they had just made the decision after consolidating a lot of the smaller clubs in the state, they had just made the decision that same year when we were um, developing our own club 
to play in regional la- uh, leagues. So um, just as we were starting to start our own club with a couple other smaller clubs in Maine, um, the two biggest clubs had made the decision to send their players out of the state at least every other, you know, at least for half of their um, games, which would be away. But I know, you know, I've heard stories of other um, teams playing more often out of the state. And so five years ago when, uh, you know, the half dozen of us independent clubs started, I think we were in survival, survival mode. Um, like I said, we had come in just with three clubs. We had a very modest, um, we had very modest ambitions and, um, I would say over the last five years, we've done well working together. Um, we go with the old saying, um, compete on the field, cooperate and collaborate, collaborate off the field. Um, and so, uh, we do pretty well working with each other. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement. Um, but considering where we started five years ago, where we were just trying to figure out whether we could actually be a viable option to the clubs that were sending their players out of state, I think we've made quite a bit of progress over the last five years to improve uh, club soccer in the state. And part of that quest is um, learning and finding, you know, finding out ways to do what you do better, find models that you can model what you do after. Um, I think for a variety of reasons, Iceland makes a lot of sense. Um, Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Your, your quest to go to Iceland, study, learn, and kind of, you know, immerse yourself in the Icelandic uh, football and, and, really be able to get there and kind of get your hands on some things that you could learn uh, lessons that you could learn that would be applicable to, you know, soccer in Maine. Uh, Do we have five hours for the interview? We'll go as long as we can. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I could talk about this all day. Um, But I will say that um, like a lot of Americans or a lot of people around the world, I think Iceland first came on my radar back in, 2016 when they qualified for the European championships and um, up here in Maine, whether it's soccer or other industries, I think we tend to discount our potential. Um, We generally are seen or see ourselves as a relatively small state, which of course we are compared to other states. Uh, We generally see ourselves as a less uh, wealthy state. And we generally, of course, um, are very pessimistic about our harsh climate. And so to see this country that has a quarter of our population, um, less wealth, at least if you, you know, compare their gross national product to, or their gross domestic product to our gross state product has a smaller economy. And I mean, of course it's called Iceland. So you can just imagine that their climate is as bad, um, if not as harsh as ours. So here, here we are up in Maine and you've got this perfect model. For, from my perspective, or at least at least this really ambitious model that maybe if we could um, learn from and instead of feeling like we're uh, inventing the wheel ourselves, you know, kind of learn their best practices and see what we can implement while considering the different political and social and, and cultural norms. Um, I was really interested in, in learning more about Iceland. And then um, probably about six years ago, um, Maine uh, de- started developing a commercial and, and cultural relationship with Iceland. Um, one of the shipping companies had moved from Virginia to Portland, the biggest city here in Maine, 
um, for their U.S. operations. And so um, we had that natural connection. And so over a couple of years, um, cultivating uh, some, some relationships with um, one of the international trade associations here in Portland and the former managing director of that shipping company, um, they had set me up with um, meeting the uh, federation. So one of the rep- the director of education at the federation, and they had set me up with uh, three clubs. And so for about a three-day period back in, uh, back in February, I had the opportunity to uh, meet with the federation and um, spend at least half a day, if not a full day, at each of the clubs. And um, I can't say enough about how transparent everyone was that I talked with, how welcoming they were. Um, I mean, I, I, I was there for about 72 hours, and I feel like for about 50 of those hours, I was in boardrooms or on soccer fields. And they basically opened up everything to me. And uh, it was a great experience. And, and I think I was able to take away some, some things that I was finally able to write about this past summer. So um, a few things uh, before we get into some of the specific things you learned. So um, you talked about the state of Maine and the mentality of the state of Maine uh, in terms of how, how you guys may look at yourselves, maybe in, in, in kind of comparing yourselves to other states uh, in the U.S. I've always contended uh, that our states and our state associations uh, should almost be like labs of experimentation and innovation, uh, that there are, there are things that we can do uh, depending on, you know, what's going on uh, in our state, whether that's, you know, the, the climate of the state, the geography of the state, the population of the state, so on and so forth. Maybe it's the concentration, the population density uh, of the state, whatever, to, you know, to come up with some creative or innovative solutions to grow the game. I don't believe that there is a, you know, one size fits all that, that should overlay the entire country. It, if you look at these different aspects of European soccer, Iceland being one of them, especially one of the more popular ones to study over the last few years, because as you mentioned, uh, they're they're qualifying for for the 2016 Euros and and, and not just qualifying but being competitive. Um, you know, really turned a lot of people on to what was going on in Iceland. But then there's other countries in Europe that have been uh, followed as well: Germany, Spain, France, uh, England recently with with the, some of the progress. They've been making in their youth systems as well. When you when you look at that across the landscape of Europe as a continent, uh, geographically, it's like being in the U.S. You have these different labs of of innovation that that take in the culture of that country, uh, and and I feel like we should be doing that as well. That in like in Maine, for example, that studying. Uh, Iceland makes complete sense as to, hey, what are some lessons that we can learn from you guys? What are you doing? How are you combating, you know, whether it's weather, whether it's climate, whether it it is, um, you know, the the population, uh, the size of the population, etc. What can can we learn from you versus, you know, maybe that doesn't apply as much to the state of Texas, for example. Um, So I, I think it's important that that to highlight that, that you, you know, that you're reaching out and you're finding 
you know, almost a brotherhood with uh, with uh, the Icelandic uh, Football Association in terms of learning and, and, and really getting some of those lessons. Um, and I think our state should 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 really approach the game that way. That we should start to look not in a monolithic like the whole country needs to be. Germany, it needs to be like, hey, we're in Maine, we're looking at Iceland, we're in Texas, we're looking at some things here that we could glean maybe from France or some other place, um, and, and really uh, be able to accentuate um, what should be the diversity of our of our country in so many ways, whether that's population, whether that's geography, uh, whether etc. Another thing that I think that you brought up uh, that w- was interesting to me is is how transparent and welcoming uh, the Icelandic Football Association and the clubs were with you and sharing with you uh, how they do what they do. They, they were not holding close to their vest their uh, quote-unquote secret sauce so in in that light can you share some of the specific lessons that you learned while you were there in february yeah absolutely and and before that i do i do want to echo what you just said um you know in politics of course there's the saying that state houses um should be looked at as the laboratories of democracy and i completely agree with you that state associations um, should be looked at as laboratories of development, whether it's um, development of players, development of clubs, development of, of coaches. I'm a big believer in uh, the potential of state associations as being um, laboratories for development of, of everyone in each state. And um, that's, that's one big reason why when I was invited to um, run for um, a board seat on the soccer main um, organization. So that's the the USYS um, affiliate up here in uh, up here in Maine. I, I jumped at the chance, and I've I've enjoyed serving on the state board um, because of the potential we have. Um, as far as what I uh, learned about in in, in Iceland, um, I would say there were probably three or four different categories. Um, but I think one of the one of the biggest that I learned was uh, the efficiency of their system. Um, what I, one of the graphics I have in, in, in my article is uh, sort of a visual representation of the, the player pathway for a player in Iceland versus um, the typical pathway for um, either my eight-year-old daughter here in, here in uh, Maine or my 11-year-old daughter and, and many other youth players in Maine. And one thing that stood out is just the consistency and, uh, or the consistent, efficient, streamlined system that they have in, uh, in Iceland in the sense that you have a uh, three-year-old who would join uh, the local club and would have opportunities to essentially play year-round with that club um, until he or she was about 19 years old. And so just the consistency and, of course, um, you know, the, the investment that they've made into um, developing quality coaches is, is world-renowned. Um, so you have these players who have anywhere from 14 to 16 years of consistent year-round uh, development opportunities with um, consistent coaching staff in, in the same club, um, while on the other hand, here here in Maine, um, you could have a, a, a player join a recreational town-run uh, program at the age of three, and by the time they are 18 years old, they it's likely they could play for as many as nine different organizations. 
um, and all of them for two or three, maybe six, maybe nine months stints um, throughout their throughout their pathway. And of course, whether you're talking about scholastic soccer or uh, what we call fall classic soccer, which is town based, or like I said, the premier club, which generally um, is off season, um, you're going to have a variety of um, levels of uh, coaching um, capacity. You're going to have a variety of levels of competition. Um, and there's a, it, it, the pathway for, for a Mainer is very jagged um, and unpredictable in a lot of ways um, and pretty inconsistent, whereas the efficiency, the streamlined model in, in Iceland is definitely something that stood out. So um, you have the efficiency of, of the player pathway, um, I've talked about this on, on our show uh, when Eric Winalda was running for president of U.S. Soccer. He talked about how um, you know the, the the player pathway was was almost like a tree with just branches everywhere, and there was there you you could just go down any number uh, of. Uh, branches and nothing necessarily led to the same place. It was just uh, a bunch of uh, options, a menu of options without uh, it really being a pathway per se. That is a, a, a key distinction that, that we see around the world, but uh, it's really crystal, crystal clear in, in what you identified in Iceland compared to what we see in the U.S., whether it's, it's you know, soccer in Maine or soccer in California, the, 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 same, the same goes. There's just so, there's so many different options, so many different pathways for players and, uh, and, and also pathways for clubs themselves. Uh, to be honest with you, there's not one uh one stream uh or pathway for a club to to grow and rise there's there's so many different options even at a youth club level in terms of sanctioning um and and who do you play with usys us club u triple sa um you know are, are you going to try to get uh, a team or all of your teams into the u.s soccer development academy or the ecnl and, you, and then you just keep opening up one enchilada after the other and um and so the you know you have that on top Top of the, the the menu of options uh, for players to to find a pathway, you have clubs with the same predicament. What what is what are what is another lesson that you learned from uh, from Iceland in your time there? Yeah, I would say another uh, key thing I found was when I so I visited uh, three different clubs um, and they did a great job trying to give me a different experience at each one. Um, so the smallest club I, I um, visited is in a town called Grindavik. It's on uh, the coast. It's sort of near the international airport that anyone has um, flown in if they've ever visited Iceland. And uh, what struck me was the resources this club had. And, and the reason I say that is because uh, we're talking about a town of 3,300 people. So even the even in the state of Maine, which you know, like I said, has a relatively small population, a town of 3,300 is a small town. Yet this club um, had a 1,500 seat stadium. Has a 1,500 state seat, uh, seat stadium. Um, it has its own uh, full sized indoor facility. It has um, it has I think about eight training fields around the, the complex, um, but. The other thing is when we were when I'm talking about transparency, um, I was I was meeting with the youth director and he actually uh, shared with me the club's budget. 
Now, obviously, I can't disclose like any details. I did tell him that, and I can't read half of it anyway without you know Google Translate. Um, but just going through this relatively small club, and I say relatively small club because if you look at our club, which is a small club, um, we have players from mostly four communities in Southern Maine that number, if you combine those populations, about 73,000. So our geographical footprint could be said um, to be larger than, than this small um, village in, in Iceland, yet its budget is sevenfold than our club's budget. And a big reason is because a lot of the resources and a lot of the revenues that they uh, can get as a result of being part of not only an open system within uh, the domestic leagues, because um, one thing that struck me is that Iceland, despite its relatively small population, has about 50 clubs that are U6 through semi-professional. And so instead of throwing all 50 of those clubs in one tier, uh, one tier league, of course, they have an open system where I believe it's three or four tiers with about 12 teams in each, in each tier. And uh, they have a promotion relegation system. And so you have this club, which is relatively small, but it uh, has been competing in the, in the top division. And so it gets things like television revenue and uh, gambling revenue from a state lottery that um, is used to regulate gambling on games. Um, of course, as a semi-professional club, they get all the revenue that a, a semi-professional or professional club gets, like concessions and gate. And um, not only that, but Iceland, of course, is, a, is an active player on the international market. So this club, Grindavik, and every other club in Iceland, they're, they're looking to um, be involved in the, in the global market. So they're earning revenue from, by transferring players that they've developed to uh, usually smaller Scandinavian countries, at least initially. Um, but, you know, we, of course, know some players who have gone on to um, play in some of the biggest leagues in the world. Um, since they're so good at developing players, this club can uh, gain and gain revenue from solidarity payments and training compensation. And so um, just by being an, part of an open system in Iceland and be, being a global or a participant in the global marketplace, you've got this relatively tiny club, which nevertheless has a lot of resources that it can invest in development of its uh, coaches, its players and its club. Lot to unpack there. I like where I like where you're going. Um, so I want to I want to dig into a couple things. So Absolutely. what you found in being in Iceland is that as a result of participating in an open system, that it opened up additional revenue streams that allowed it to outpace from a budgetary standpoint a club like yours. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think our club is unique in the United States in the sense that if you were to look at our budget, um, 90 to 95% of our revenue will be registration fees. Um, and then maybe we can make up the difference with sponsorships or we try to avoid them, but maybe some fundraisers. Um, but because, of course, here in the U.S. as an independent club, with, um, you know, competing in a closed system. So it's, it's very difficult to um, gain revenues outside of those, uh, those sources of revenue. 
And uh, I mean, in my experience, that's that's the biggest reason why registration fees or participation fees for youth soccer players are so high, because as clubs, um, that's the only reliable or pretty much the only reliable source of income we we have. Now, fortunately, our club is nonprofit. So our goal each season is just to um, break even. But when you have a lot of these for-profit youth soccer clubs um, who have investors um, who are looking to make a profit, obviously, if they are going to make more money, that usually comes through registration fees or participation fees. Whereas in Iceland, though they do charge participation fees and registration fees, even a club like Grindavik in a town of 3,300 can have relatively affordable registration fees in large part because they're able to offset those fees with so many other sources of revenue that we as U.S. clubs currently don't have um, access to. So the typical issue you run into in our current closed system of disconnected leagues, which shuts out most other revenue opportunities, and this goes all the way up to the top levels of professional soccer in America. They, they run into the same issues. Um, yeah. it, it's not just, it's not just a youth club in Maine that deals with this. It's clubs at all levels of, uh, of American soccer that deal with the, the dearth of resources from other channels, including, you know, television revenue and other sources that, that are just not there. Um, for clubs Correct. and that's not, and Correct. it's not connecting all the way down into our, our system, uh, being disjointed is hurting us, uh, and hurting our clubs financially. And it's putting more and more of the burden, uh, from a programming standpoint, operation standpoint on families. And when families are the primary source of paying bills, you, what you run into is that development often, um, in, I would say actually in most cases suffers. Um, it, it becomes very difficult for a club to, to, to have merit-based teams playing time, etc., because all the parents are paying money and they're trying to keep all their, their revenue streams happy. Um, and, and when you, when you run into that, you're also looking at, you know, uh, many times clubs will stack rosters, uh, to maximum levels or, or even beyond, um, and because that's just additional revenue the club can bring in, um, without any really additional extra cost, uh, by putting 18, 19, 20 kids on a roster, um, which is absurd to me. So, um, when you when you look at those revenue streams that you find in an open system, whether they're television revenues, whether they're uh, you know coming because of of you know uh, a gambling. Uh, income, uh, lottery, etc., cetera, um, that is becoming more and more prevalent sports betting here in the U S. Um, there, there's a lot of opportunities if we were to get our system streamlined, our pathways, uh, cleaned up where I think revenue could start to, to flow to clubs. Um, what, if you could pick one other lesson that you learned uh, with your time there in Iceland with the three clubs, as well as with the uh, Icelandic uh, Football Association, what 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 other lesson would you, uh, would you want to share today um, that you learned, taking in everything you've already shared so far? Yeah, absolutely. I would say the third theme would be just overall purpose. Um, 
I, I sometimes I spend a lot of time talking or thinking about um, what our club's purpose is, what uh, what soccer in the state of Maine's purpose is. And um, I'm not sure that that's a conversation that a lot of those Icelandic clubs um, and administrators and coaches are, are asking themselves because pu- purpose is built into the system um, in the sense that on the one hand, they um, all these clubs are either tied to towns or in the case of Reykjavik, I believe there are nine clubs that are generally um, tied to neighborhoods within, you know, obviously the, the uh, country's largest city. And so one purpose is community-based. Um, as part of a public-private relationship with that town, uh, the private club um, has, has to provide programming to every youth player in, the, in that town or, or in that neighborhood who wants to play soccer for that club. Um, so within one club, within one age group, you will have um, maybe the, the um, lowest skilled player playing in the same age group as a player who, when he or she is 17 or 18, um, may go on and play, um, you know, professionally elsewhere in Europe. Um, so that is that's, that's one purpose the clubs are uh, very much community-based. Um, as I mentioned before, they have an open system. So whether you are a top division club competing to ensure that during that May to September season, that 22 game season, you are out of the relegation zone. Or if you are a lower, lower level club who is trying to um, achieve promotion to the next um, division, Every single type of training session or every game for their semi-professional sides um, have meaning and have value. And then, of course, when they put so many resources in developing players and coaches, and it's a realistic dream for those players and those coaches to not only play uh, semi-professionally in their own country or play professionally outside of their country, or because it's such an efficient system maybe even represent their country on the youth national team or um, the senior national team. Um, What I think those clubs in Iceland have, what that system has that sometimes I think we're lacking here in the U S is just purpose, purpose every day, whether it's on the field or off the field. um, They, they just have a system that um, gives purpose to everyone involved every day. I love it. I love uh, I love those lessons. How can people um, read more of your thoughts and in details of what you covered um, in your trip to Iceland in February? Yep. So um, the the post is on our club's blog. So uh, RooseveltSoccer dot com. Um, it's it's Roosevelt with one O instead of two O's. That's a long story. We won't get into. And then um, I, they can also follow me on Twitter. Um, I think my handle is at JCL Morgan. Um, and, you know, that's where I'm pretty active in, in the discussion um, with you guys, with, with you and, and Chris Kessel. And, and first of all, I do want to uh, not only thank you guys for uh, representing our club in the, in the studio with our scarf, but also the work that you and Chris did um, collecting those signatures um, of club representatives to um, petition FIFA for um, promotion and relegation. 
Um, I'm proud to say that our club was one of the first 100 to, uh, to sign that petition and um, definitely appreciate all the work that you and Chris and others um, do every day to help our club, clubs like ours, our players, coaches, and, uh, and everyone like us across the U.S. Well, I appreciate that uh, that shout out. I know Chris does as well. Um, we certainly don't do what we do for the shout outs, but we do appreciate uh, the appreciation. Uh, we definitely feel the love when uh, you and others uh, speak up uh, with that. Um, honestly, for us, uh, I'll speak for Chris on this. Um, we just want to see every club in this country uh, have an opportunity and uh, in the same opportunity. I I am not one who advocates for equal outcomes. I don't believe in that uh, in any aspect of life. I think everyone's different. We all have different ambitions. Um, and I think we rob ourselves uh, of potential when we guarantee outcomes to the same outcome to everyone. However, I do believe in an equal equal opportunity that uh, everyone should have the chance. And if you do it well and you do it better than someone else, then you should get rewarded for that. And, um, you know, having a system like promotion and relegation and open access um, opens the doors in so many ways and it solves so many problems. It is not um, a system that is going to solve every problem on its on its own uh, with that one policy, but it opens the door to more solutions um, than we can get to right now. And uh, you, you would see that with revenue. You would see that with uh, player pathways, club pathways, etc. that would get straightened out just by having a merit-based system where everyone's given the same chance to, uh, to rise and fall on uh, their own efforts. And, uh, and, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that, that process. Chris and I have been talking about it uh, behind the scenes in the months since about, you know, what comes next. Uh, we, you know, we've been waiting on um, the court of arbitration and sport ruling. Uh, that was that, that effort was collected on behalf of that. We've, we've yet to get any, uh, you know, ruling on that. And so we haven't, we haven't gone beyond what we we initially did there but uh we are working on some plans behind the scenes um for those clubs who who already uh signed on but uh open it up to every club in the u.s to to be a part of this as well on um you know get keeping the ball moving in the right direction um you know i think the more and more we come together uh in the same way that where we started uh, the interview we can kind of uh, wrap up this interview in that looking um to to build healthy competition we 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 need to make the system better so that everyone has an opportunity to get better not just a few and uh, and so I'm proud to be a part and play whatever small role I play in that. And I and I thank you for being one of those clubs that's willing to to speak up and support. Um, you know, a, soccer Maine itself has uh, has been a supporter uh, of of 
taking the the right steps and and reform and uh, other state associations have been um, you know similar in that way about speaking up and supporting um, you know progress in this country and and I think that, that there's been a lot of clubs that have you know followed suit in the same way and yours is one of those clubs and uh, and I appreciate you um, being a leader in that as well and I hope people will take the time to uh, check out your article uh, it's worth uh, a read some lessons to learn and then um, you know reach out to John and uh, you know if you if you're running a club and you're trying to figure out you know how can we do what we do better or maybe you're looking at starting a club and and you want some advice hey what are some lessons you learned what if you could go back what would you do differently a lot of those things um, you know John's going to be like what he found in Iceland, transparent, welcoming for those conversations. Uh, and, and I know he'll be open to it and, and we need more like you, John fighting this fight every day and trying to make soccer better in this country. And, uh, and I want to say thank you to you as well for, uh, for doing that and, uh, and keeping up, uh, your work there in Maine to make soccer in Maine, uh, a better, a better experience for, for all of the uh, current and next generation of players at as they uh, get the opportunity to grow up in an environment where it's better today than it was yesterday, or at least that's the goal that we're all working for. And uh, and I appreciate your work and coming on the show to share with us, um, you know, your thoughts, your insights, and the things you learned while you were in Iceland. So appreciate you coming on the show. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And I hope to be able to uh, come back in the future and hopefully report on some uh, some some progress we're uh, continuing to make in the state of Maine. Absolutely. I look forward to uh, to learning more about that uh, next time you're on the show. So, John, thanks for coming on the show. We, we, we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. John C.L. Morgan of Roosevelt Soccer Club in Soccer, Maine. Thanks for joining the show. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show. Thanks for coming on the show. John C.L. Morgan. Really appreciate him spending some time with us today and his insights on Maine soccer. Look, I think that's one of the things we got to take into account is every state 
has unique situations that they have to deal with, and they should be laboratories for development and success and finding ways to make it work. And I think we need to revisit the entire way we are doing soccer in this country. We've got to regionalize, and I think that goes all the way down into licensing, coaching education. We should be looking at these licenses much more like driver's licenses and not like Harvard elitist pricing schemes that keep people out. Um, We've got to do a much better job on that front for sure. And, And there's so many things I wish we could get into, but we're just simply out of time today. Tomorrow we have Tiffany Weimer and Open Line Friday. Stay tuned for more details on that. You can watch the show always on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or danielworkman.com. Find me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. Thanks for watching. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.